Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, where we're going to be at. I think when you ask somebody, hey, what's your top three favorite movies? Top five. If you're, at least, if, especially if you're talking to a guy, like a real man, you know, like a <laughs> gladiator's on there. You know what I'm talking about? A lot of the guys are like, what movie? <laughs> at least for me, I have just always loved the far-fetched, but I appreciate it, story of Gladiator. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one, the Russell Crowe 2000 movie of Maximus? where he's wronged by, I can't remember the son's name at the time, but he's wronged and now he's imprisoned, becomes a gladiator slave, and he has to somehow avenge the death of the emperor. Marcus Aurelius, Caesar, avenge his death, for he was murdered by his own son. And so this whole movie is just building up where Maximus gets the opportunity to fight the son that killed his dad, to be emperor. And why Maximus cares so much to do that, do you remember why? It's because he, he honored, he loved, he appreciated the leadership of his emperor, Marcus Aurelius. He said there's never been an emperor like this Caesar. He loved the way that Caesar reigned and he honored the man even to his death. He was committed to allegiance to this emperor, this king of his. You know, what's amazing though is this happened, or well, the movie is inspired by, very loosely, historic events that took place about 100, 150 years after Christ walked the earth. And he was so committed to an emperor, that's really, he was wrong, is not the best king that's ever walked the planet. Actually, he was 100 years after the best king that has ever or will ever walk the planet. You and I still serve that king. That king is still enthroned. He still sits on his throne. He still reigns. And in the time that we have in God's Word today, I, my hope really for you is that you wouldn't see the reign of Christ, the rule of Christ in your life as an an affront or an offense to your joy? That it's not oppressive, but rather that you would see the reign and the rule of Christ in your life as a blessing, not a burden, as a blessing for those who sit under His reign and enjoy His rule. That, that's what I want. If, if you know Him as Lord and Savior today, I hope you enjoy him being Lord. And if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, I hope that you would be convinced today that you would see through his word, through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you would see that his rule in your life is a far better rule. It's far more of a blessing for you than anyone else to rule in your life, including and especially you ruling your own life. Really, it's that much of a blessing because he's that good of a king. 
And this is really Matthew's desire for you as well, is that you would have that reality sunken deep into your heart. That's why he starts his gospel, the, the gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, by presenting Jesus as king. He wants you to see that he's the great king. Right? His genealogy says so. He's the heir to the, to the throne of David. Verse 1 all the way down to verse 17. It is all about how Jesus is the heir to the throne of David. Last week we looked at how Christ's conception even legitimizes his kingship over all kings. I mean, he is supernatural. He's unlike anyone else. He was born both human and divine. He is the ruler over rulers, the king over kings, the Lord over lords. He is better than all. So this is really Matthew's argument all in chapter 1. Jesus is Lord. And now chapter 2 is really all about how do you respond to that now? He's made the statement in chapter 1. Chapter 2, how do people respond to that? How do people respond to this lordship of Jesus? And this is where we find ourselves, Matthew chapter 2. And I want to read the first 12 verses of this chapter this morning. This is what the Word of God says, starting in Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, you, O Bethlehem, is the land of, Judea, of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of, Ju- of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring him to me. Bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they were on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And God bless the reading of his word. From the start of chapter 2, we can see a storm brewing. Maybe you can. If not, I'd like to point it out to you. There is a storm brewing that Matthew wants you to see like, oh man, it's about to get hairy. Just look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. It says, now 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, let's just look at these two verses for a minute. We see a couple things. Here's the situation. Okay? First, we have Jesus born. Okay? And in all of Matthew 1 so far, we see that Matthew's really wanting us to see he's the heir to the throne. He's the king of God's people. Right? He's the heir to the throne of David, and he was born in Bethlehem. To you and I, we're like, okay, no significance there. But to the Jews, this is highly significant because Bethlehem was none other than the hometown of David. So the heir to the throne of David was born in the town of David. This is like the, the scene where Simba's lifted up and all the animals are going crazy, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's already referenced earlier in the service. Lion King, where Simba's lifted up, the, the king has been born and everyone's losing their mind, or at least they should be, in excitement. So that's really the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is Jesus, the king, is born. But the second thing we see in those first two verses there, there's already a king who really likes his throne. His name's Herod. King Herod. Now let's just pause for a second and consider who is King Herod. Because this isn't a fable. This isn't a make-believe story just for you and I to enjoy reading. No, this is actually real history. This really happened. There was a man named King Herod. In fact, there's no other person in all of antiquity, including Jesus, including Alexander the Great, including Caesar, no one else in all of antiquity has been written about more by primary sources than King Herod. He has more resources from primary sources still preserved to this day than anyone else that lived in that time. King Herod. He was a real man, and he was... A psycho. He was crazy. He put to death his favorite wife. He had a lot of them. He had a bunch of them, and he had a favorite, and he put her to death. He had a bad argument. That's a summary. <laughs> but also his favorite mother-in-law put her to death. He put to death a few uncles, a few cousins. We'll see later in Matthew chapter 2 next week that he schemed to kill a bunch of children in fact, actually, there's um, a record of Caesar. He knew King Herod, and he even quoted, uh, a paraphrase, roughly that he would rather be Herod's swine than his child. Why? Because he knew he had a better life expectancy to not be in his family and rather be a pig. He has a better chance of surviving Herod that way. That's what Caesar said. Josephus in a backhanded way, said that Herod was quite a family man. Not a good way. This is all true. Herod was crazy, and he would kill people that would ever threaten his throne or his rule. Okay? He was, all in all legitimacy, a psychopath, probably, and unstable. And Matthew wants us to see that this man is the man who's king over God's people right now. We see it three times. Matthew iterates king. 
Look down at your copy of God's word real quick. Verse 1. Just be very fast here, right? In the days of Herod, the king. Verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard this. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Do you see this? Matthew wants you and I to see this crazy man is king over God's people, and a second king was just born, the real king. And the match is really sparked for this wildfire that's about to go off. The match that really lit it all was that people came, we can see that in verse 2, people came from far away to worship him. He who is king of the Jews, and it wasn't Herod. I mean, just imagine this. They, they go up to the king's palace, and they're like, looking at the man that's sitting on the throne, and they're like, hey, do you know where the king is? We're here to worship him. You ever have that awkward moment where someone's like waving, and you wave, and you realize they're waving to someone behind you? And it's like, scratching my head, and just walking away. I mean, they're like, where's the king? And he's like, right here. And they're like, no, where's the king? Right? Could you just imagine doing that to that psychopath? And this wasn't just some random person was kind of loony, you know, not on the curb. No, this was people that made a trek from a long distance away, from a distant land. So now Herod's probably thinking, okay, if these non-Jews, these people far out from the east, probably near Babylon, if they're coming to worship the true king of the Jews, what does that mean about my people, the actual Jews? What are they going to think? And they didn't just want to come and meet Jesus. They wanted to come and worship him. This isn't unheard of to want to wanna worship a king, right? In this time period and even before it, we can obviously think back to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Wanting his people to worship him as king. So this is unheard of. This isn't crazy. But you see the storm brewing. Crazy king. The actual king's born, and people are starting to show up to worship. So, it's no surprise that the Messiah, Jesus, was not met with celebration by some. Right? He wasn't met with celebration from some people. In fact, not just some people, but most people. Isn't that crazy? Let me, let's read verses 3 through 6 again. It says, When Herod the king heard about this, that people were coming to worship him, when Herod the king heard about this, he was troubled. And not just Herod. All Jerusalem with him. Wow. Verse 4, And assembling... All the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is this Christ that was born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall a ruler come who will shepherd my people, Israel. Let's pause and think about this for a second. I see... Three groups of people, three people in general, 
who knew about Jesus' arrival but weren't overly thrilled about it. First, there's King Herod. That's the most obvious, and you and I have already talked a little bit about why he's concerned or threatened by Jesus' coming. That's King Herod. That's the first one. But the second one, it's a little more confusing, perplexing. Not just Herod was troubled, but all of Jerusalem was troubled that the Messiah, their Savior, was born. They were bothered by this. kind of causes you and I to think, what in the world, right? You guys should be excited. You're under the oppression of a foreign ruler, Rome, and now your Savior, the Messiah, the one who's going to rule with the iron rod, a scepter has come to free the oppressed. You hear he's born, and you're troubled. And you have to think, what in the world is going on here? There could be a number of reasons for it. It is perplexing, but maybe it's because they see outsiders, people that they would call dogs, coming and worshiping before they would come and worship. could be that. Regardless of the reasons, I, I would say there's a lesson here for you and I. I think it's just, very simply, it's in our sinful nature. It's in your sinful nature. It's in my sinful nature to just be bothered when someone shows up to command us. We like freedom, right? We're the home of the free. We like independence. Why work for somebody when you can work for yourself, right? I mean, that is like the mantra of so many. We hate to be under other people's command. So maybe it's just that, that they hear this guy's coming. And that doesn't jive with their sinful nature, not wanting to submit to whatever he might have coming for them. It's true for them. They didn't like kings. If you go through all of Israel's history, they definitely didn't like their, they, they, they liked to do things the way they wanted to do things. You know, it's true for us today. Let's, let's apply this a little bit to our lives because I think you and I are that way, honestly. There are so many people in churches, churches just like ours, people in our church, right? It's all over where we don't want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Some would claim to be Christian and yet don't really live or want to live like Jesus is on the throne. Right? In theory, absolutely. But in actuality, and in practicality, no way. I like the way I'm living. Right? But when Jesus is truly on the throne, and He's truly King of your life, That shifts everything, doesn't it? Right? Married people are no longer free to divorce just because you feel like it. No, he's king. Women are not free to abort babies or fetuses, whatever you want to call the child. 
You're not free to abort it just because it's inconvenient for your life or the timing didn't work out. Christ is king, and he says something on this. Dating couples are not free to live together no matter how long we've been dating, how, no, how well we know each other. Basically married, Christ is king. No one is free to claim a gender different from their sex, even if it quote-unquote feels right to them or more right. right. Christ is king. And when he's king... That doesn't jive with our sinful nature sometimes, does it? We're just like them. And so let's not lie to ourselves. Let's not even point to the person sitting next to us, right? It's true for you too. It's true for you too in your own way. And it's true for me. The reality is, is we are not king of our lives. And here's maybe the one that maybe bothers you more. Your happiness isn't first priority. We need to hear that sometimes. Isaac needs to hear that sometimes. Christ is king. His lordship is first priority. And in fact, when we actually see that, when we realize that, it doesn't oppress our lives or burden our lives. Actually, our lives are better for it. I I just want you to hear that again. Your life is better for it when you would submit to and follow the lordship of Christ. It's not burdensome. It's freeing. When you get off the throne and he gets on. So, King Herod is bothered. All of Jerusalem is bothered. And we see in verses 4, 5, and 6, the religious leaders, that's the scribes of the people, the chief priests, verse 4 says, they weren't celebrating either. Now just, just grasp this with me for a second. It doesn't say they were troubled, like Jerusalem and Herod. It says they were troubled. It doesn't say the religious leaders were troubled, but we see that they really didn't care. You see that? Herod gets them all together, verse 4, and he says, hey, where's the Messiah at? The one who was born Christ to rule over God's people. And they quickly, they, they throw the answer off like it's Bible quiz, right? They're just like, oh, hit the buzzer. I know the answer. It's Bethlehem. All right, what do we want for lunch? Right? I mean, he just said the Christ has been born. They know exactly where. And they do nothing with the information themselves. Does this not baffle you too? They were by no means rushing over there to meet their long-awaited Messiah. I love what Alistair Begg has to say on this. He says, the wise men cared, but they didn't have all the answers. The scribes have the answers, but they didn't care. The wise men traveled 800 miles in search for an answer. The scribes aren't interested in going six miles down the road to meet the answer. Wow. I think we get a lesson from this. These were the Bible leaders of the day. These were the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And I think this teaches us that, listen, 
Bible knowledge is not enough. Being able to hit the buzzer first and answering a Bible quiz question is not what God wants chiefly for your life. God doesn't just want you to have right beliefs. It's not all about Bible memorization, though that's good. Listen, God wants you to love Him. It's that simple. And that means giving up everything if necessary, traveling 800 miles for Him. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. The tragedy is here is that it wasn't God's people who had a heart for Jesus, was it? It wasn't God's people who welcomed him in and celebrated him. It was those who were far off from him. And let this just be a warning for you and I as the church. May, May his word not be rejected in his own hometown, so to speak. That he would have to go to the dogs. Or that the rocks would have to cry out for him to receive that praise. May he not be rejected in his own church. May we follow and accept and submit to the lordship of our good and gracious king. So, we see he wasn't welcomed by many, most And in fact, Herod begins devising this plan to stomp out his competition. We aren't there yet, but in verse 16, we know that his real intent is to kill Jesus. But that's not how he frames it, is it? He doesn't want to set off alarms to the wise men, so this is what he does. Let's read verses 7 and 8 real quick. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word, so that I may come and worship him too. This was Herod's intent, to kill the Christ. He hated, he hated the threat of him on the throne of his own life that much. And again, let's not point fingers to other people. What are you and I willing to do that we might still sit on the throne of our lives? Be like Jonah and run as far as we can before we accept the leadership of God. It's not just Herod. I see Isaac a lot in Herod. I see Isaac a lot in Herod. And I hope you're not too quick to see application for other people before your own that you might also see yourself in Herod too. We love to sit on our throne. But while Herod hated Jesus' arrival, the wise men had a very different response, didn't they? Let's read the rest of the passage here. This is the last bit of it, verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their 
treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. A couple things I want to highlight in how they contrast Herod. First, they rejoiced, didn't they? It's very different than being troubled when you hear the coming of the king. They rejoiced. And this rejoicing that was in them, this exceeding joy that was within them, prompted them to fall down and worship him, presenting gifts to him. Now, I have to kind of ruin the Christmas nativity for you. Can I do that? Those Christmas cards that you haven't sent out yet this year, but probably did last year, which have the wise men and Mary and Joseph sitting by a manger worshiping infant Jesus. just want to ruin that for you. Because <laughs> they didn't come to a manger. They came to a house. They didn't come to a baby. They came to a child. They showed up probably two years late. That's why we see a little bit later in chapter 2 that they were, they were searching for a two-year-old to kill. Right? Herod was. So, these wise men, first off, we don't know they were kings. Second off, we don't even know there were three of them. And you're like, what is happening to my Christmas that I've known? For we don't know there were kings. We don't know there were three of them. They certainly weren't there when he was born. Okay, let me just throw that out there. I know, I know. But imagine this scene. Because this one's just as amazing. Jesus was probably around two. Okay? He knew a few words. Not a bunch. He was starting to string maybe a few of them together. He wobbled a lot. He would fall when he'd start to run. Probably smack his mouth on a table when he tries to lift up on it. That's, that's the Jesus they came to see, isn't it? He probably lodged things in his nose and then lost his mind when he realized he couldn't get it out, right? If Jesus was most likely two years old, he probably liked the box that the frankincense came in more than the actual frankincense. Any parents out there know what I'm talking about? This is the Jesus they came to, snotty-nosed Jesus. And they see him, and they bow down and worship the two-year-old. See, that sounds crazy and comical, but that's actually painting a picture of a very realistic scene. He was a human two-year-old, like you and I know two-year-olds. And I think this teaches us some theology, believe it or not, that Jesus didn't become worthy of our worship just because he died on the cross some 33 years after this point. He didn't become worthy of your praise at that point because he did something good for you. He's always been worthy of you to bow down and worship him because of who he is, not just what he would do for them. Jesus is worthy of your praise for who he is. And so, we're wrapping up. I guess my question for you just to ponder and think on for yourself is, how do you respond to the king who's arrived already? That's Matthew 
That's Matthew's question for you in chapter 2 is how do you respond that the king of your life sits on the throne? Are you like Herod in Jerusalem? Completely opposed to it. You like being king of your life. Sounds bad, but let's be honest. Are you like them? Can I just say one thing to you if that's the case? Again, there is no king, including yourself, which will more richly bless your life than Jesus reigning in your life. It's true. There's no greater king that can rule in your life and bless you the way Jesus does. So if you're like Herod and all of Jerusalem, I just want you to hear that. I really do. I want you hear that. Maybe you're not so much openly opposed to it, but you're like the scribes and the religious leaders. You're really just indifferent. You just kind of shrug your shoulders at it. Maybe, in fact, you grew up in church. You knew the Bible really well, just like they did. You could answer questions about the Old Testament even. But maybe you just don't care. Or your care is just lessening and your tank is empty in care. And your worship is empty and hollow. Listen, Jesus doesn't want you to be a Christian just because that's all you know how to be. He doesn't want you to be a Christian just because that's tradition in your household. If you're just here because it's a habit to come to church on Sunday because your mom and dad raised you that way, I need to tell you, Jesus deserves your affection. Your affection. And, it, and it's possible, it really is, to be obedient without affection. And I just tell you, if you're like the scribes and Pharisees that know about a Savior, but you have no desire to run to Him, and I just tell you, He deserves you to do that. He deserves me to do that. My desires for all of us is that we would be like the wise men. Genuinely excited to run to Him. Bow down before Him. Kiss His feet and give Him all the gifts we have to give Him. To take off our crowns and throw it at His feet. He is a worthy King. And His rule is a good rule both now and forever. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 